Hi ladies, welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team and I'm really glad to be here with each of you this morning. I want to shout out a welcome to the West Campus because they are joining us uh, today also. I'm glad all of you are here. It is a great day to be together studying the scriptures, studying the scriptures together. I was part of a small group recently that asked the icebreaker question, uh, what's your favorite movie? What's your favorite movie? Now, I don't know about you, but that's a hard one for me. I don't have just one favorite movie. I have a list of what I call comfort movies. Now, they're a little bit like comfort food, but it's that whole list of movies that you drag out and you want to just sit down and watch something that you know has a happy ending and Stop Life's Chaos for just a few minutes. And one of my very favorite comfort movies is a holiday classic that I I imagine everybody in this room has probably seen. And it's A Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. They play George and Mary Bailey. They meet, they fall in love, they have a wonderful life until something unexpected happens that kind of sends George into a tailspin. Now, if you know the movie, you know that George spends the rest of the movie with a lot of incorrect theology. Let me point that out right now. There's probably not any good theology, and it's a wonderful life. But by the end of the movie, George discovers that God has truly given him a wonderful life in ways he didn't even realize. As we move forward with our Genesis study this morning, I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am, it's obvious that our God had a plan from the foundation of the world for a wonderful life for his people. And he begins to lay it out right here, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4. So open your Bibles with me to chapter 2, verse 4, and we're going to start reading about that wonderful life that God has Verse 4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Moses has switched gears here from the creation account that we have been reading the last couple of weeks. He's moved from giving us a description of how the world was created. He's moved into telling us what happens to God's creation right here. Chapter 2, verse 4, is the beginning of the story of mankind. What happens in this wonderful world God has made? Um, Look at Acts 17, 26 on your verse sheet. Let me pull mine out. It says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, and having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. 
God has made every nation from one man in hopes that every man in every nation would eventually seek him and find him. And that story begins right here. This is a significant portion of our scripture. Um, And I want you to notice that beginning in verse 4, Moses, um, in the creation account that we studied last week, Moses used the title, the Hebrew title, Elohim when he was referring to God. So throughout chapter 1 in our English Bibles, all it says is God with a capital G. And that is the Hebrew title Elohim that Moses used in the creation account. And what Elohim means is strong one or powerful one. Well, here beginning in uh, verse 2 of chapter 4, Moses changes and he begins to combine Elohim with the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is translated in our Bibles here, Lord God. Now, what Moses is doing for Israel here is he's uh, wanting them to recognize that the God that created the entire universe, Elohim, is the same covenant God, Yahweh, Elohim, Yahweh, the Lord God, um, He's the same God that called Abraham and raised up a people for himself. Uh, This is Israel's God right here, and he wants Israel to recognize it. Now, in verse 5, Moses begins the backdrop for God's creation of mankind. We know from chapter 1 that God had actually created all the wonderful, edible, living plants on day 3 of creation. And then on day 6, he created man. But Moses is not contradicting himself right here in verse 5 when he says, No bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant had sprung up. The edible plants were already there. The beautiful seed-bearing plants that God had placed in the garden. This is a reference to Moses contrasting the weeds and the non-edible shrubs that are going to spring up in that gorgeous garden after the fall. He's talking about we have a world now that is perfect It's filled with wonderful, beautiful things that God has created, all of them edible. But there's going to come a day when there are weeds in that world. He's giving that contrast. Uh, But even without the weeds, even in this perfect garden that exists right now, this is a world in need of a caretaker, someone to work the ground that God has already planted. The word formed in verse 7 is a Hebrew word that means to mold and to fashion and to frame with purpose. Mold and fashion and frame with purpose. As a potter, an artist that forms a beautiful creation from a lump of clay. Years ago, Christ Chapel had an executive pastor by the name of Chad Windsor. In fact, our Windsor Children's Building is named after Chad. Chad died of cancer in 1998. But one of the sermons I remember that Chad preached, he put a potter's wheel on the stage and attempted to form a pot as he preached his sermon. Um, one tiny slip of Chad's finger, too much pressure on one side of the clay. It was such a great visual. And what he was beginning to form would all of a sudden become misshapen and completely unusable. And he would have to start all over again. He never did make a pot as well as I remember that day. It kept uh, wobbling off the potter's wheel. But in Genesis, God is the potter. And he is much better than Chad ever thought about being. And this potter... This divine potter is scooping up the dust of the earth to carefully craft and shape the first human being 
And because it's God at the potter's wheel, there is no chance that this man will be anything less than perfect. Look at Psalm 139 on your verse sheet. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. And Isaiah 64, 8, which is one of my favorite verses. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. Man is the work of divine hands. He is a divine plan of God. He's not a random clump of cells that springs up out of some... um, uh, mold and mire as evolutionary theory tries to claim we know how man came to be because Moses tells us in the history of mankind right here God carefully purposefully intentionally fashioned man now the fact that God uses dust as the medium for his human creation actually reveals the humble beginnings of man the humble beginnings of mine. He is divinely and carefully crafted by God himself, but he was a created being just like God's other creatures. Last week in Genesis 1, and 27, we saw that man was created by God himself in the image of God. But this week, as Moses tells the nation of Israel the story of how that man was particularly uh, crafted from the dust of the earth, what Moses is doing is debunking the idea that was popular in ancient Egypt and in the Middle East when the nation of Israel was walking with Moses. He was debunking the idea that man had descended from God and was therefore God himself. Made in the image of God does not mean descended from God. It does not mean that you yourself are a God. But being the work of God's divine hands is not the only thing that should rock our understanding of who this man is that God has created. Because God does something very remarkable at the end of verse 7. Something that sets man, all of us, apart from God's other creatures. The text says God breathed into the nostrils of this lovingly formed, carefully crafted human being, this man. And it was the breath, this breath, the breath of God himself that gives man his physical life, that gives him his spiritual understanding and gives him a conscience. Look at Job 32, 8 on your verse sheet. But it is the spirit in man the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand, that makes him understand. And Proverbs twenty twenty seven talks about our conscience. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his inmost parts. You know, in the midst of all the stunning and amazing things that God has just created, that we've been reading about the last couple of weeks, that he's created the sun and the moon and the stars and every plant and every animal He's crafted a man. This is the moment that seems the most miraculous. The miracle of human life is not even that God created us himself out of the dust of the earth so carefully. The miracle of human life is that God initiates a relationship with us as he breathes in the nostrils, the spirit that gives us our soul, the spirit that gives us the capacity to have a unique relationship with him. God's wonderful plan is that we would know him and be known by him. And it's a wonderful life when we realize that 
God has made each one of us to have a relationship with him. Okay, let's keep reading. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 in chapter 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to to the site and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is a great landscaper. I think he's a pretty good realtor. It's kind of the first house hunters international here um, as God puts man in the garden. He plants a garden. He plants a gorgeous garden for man's first home. And then God himself moves him into it. We got, Adam did not wander around and just discover this beautiful place. Moses tells us that the trees in the garden are both beautiful and they are all both, they're all delicious. They're all wonderful food. But he also tells us there are two unique trees in the garden that God has specifically made. He says one was the tree of life and one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're probably close together and in the midst of the garden. Now the tree of life appears to be a means by which God um, somehow sustains Adam and Eve's life. Uh, eternally in the garden. We don't really know what that means, but we know that they ate of it, and that's how their life was sustained by God. In contrast, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil apparently would give experiential knowledge of things that would both help in life and things that would hurt in life. Experiential knowledge of the good and the bad that life has to offer. Now, there's a lot of... uh, discussion among scholars about the location of Eden, but it's in the general direction of the promised land probably, or possibly a little bit east of there in um, the area of the Persian Gulf. You know, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers that are actually mentioned in the next few verses, which we're not going to read. I hope you read them in your small group time. The Tigris and the Euphrates rivers actually exist today in modern-day Iraq. Now, a striking feature of this description where uh, Moses lays out all the rivers is that the things that he gives us in this passage along with the rivers, the trees and the river and the precious gems are all described in Revelation 21-22 as part of our future home at the end of the age after the millennial kingdom when we will dwell with God eternally. All of these things are mentioned in Revelation also. So God's final home for man is going to resemble his first home for man, which I think is uh, remarkable. Remarkable. All right, let's read. uh, We're going to skip verses uh, about the rivers between 10 and 14. But look down to verse 15 with me. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now Moses repeats himself here. He's already said um, that he put uh, the man in the garden up in verse 8. But right here, this particular word that Moses uses for put in Hebrew implies several different things. This one word implies that uh, Adam was set in the garden for rest and safety and fellowship with God. Now the garden that uh, God puts man in is extremely beautiful and it's certainly enough to sustain the man. 
the garden itself, even though it's beautiful and even though it contains the food that man needs to eat, the garden itself is not the gift, the only gift that God plans for man. Just putting him in this beautiful setting, even for rest and safety, is not God's end game. For the man that we know as Adam, uh, we see Adam's name down a few verses uh, in the text. The gift that God plans for Adam is the gift of purpose in his life. The gift of purpose in his life. Purpose in life is a goal or an aim, an objective. It's that reason that really gets us out of bed every single morning. And we see God give to Adam here a goal or an aim or a purpose at the end of verse 15. When God says to Adam that he's going to put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now, we can make the mistake here of thinking that the purpose God gives Adam is simply work. Hey, we got to keep that guy busy. No telling what kind of trouble he might get into if he just sits around all day and eats from the tree of life. Uh, And work is good, and work is certainly necessary in a garden, in any garden. But it's not the purpose that God gives Adam. The work will happen, but the purpose that God gives Adam is to serve him and to thereby worship him as he cares for his creation. The wonderful life that God has for Adam in the garden is all about the purpose of serving God and worshiping God and bringing God glory as he cares for God's creation. It was a purpose that was designed to keep Adam looking outward at the things around him that needed his attention and care. It was a purpose that was designed to keep Adam looking upward at the one who had provided this for him and sustained him. It was a purpose designed to prevent Adam from only looking inward every single day. You know, and as believers, this gift of purpose in Adam's life should be a significant eye-opener for us uh, because God desires from the beginning of creation, from the second he created Adam, he made sure that his man had a purpose in life. And that should speak to each one of us too because it means that God intends for us to have a purpose in life too. A purpose that keeps us looking outward at the needs around us that we may be able to participate in that serve God and bring God glory. It keeps us looking upward at the God that places us in those purposeful situations so that we can serve him and worship him. You know... You might take a look at this and say, well, God made it simple for Adam. He took him, he put him there, he set his purpose before him, and he even articulated it for him. You're to work and keep the garden. That is the purpose that serves uh, me and allows uh, you to worship me. Uh, But, you know, as believers, he makes it pretty simple for us because throughout The pages of this Bible are laid out God's purposes for each one of us. It's his intention when he created man. We see that from Adam. I put a couple of great purposes that are in the scripture on your verse sheet. Mark 12, 30 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What a great purpose. If we got out of bed today and dedicated our life to loving God and loving the people around us. And there's another great purpose on Matthew 28:19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded. Sharing the gospel is a great purpose that God has given to us as well. It is a wonderful life, just like God intended it to be, when we have purpose in our life that allows us to serve God and to bring glory to God. Okay, let's read a couple more verses, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now along with the gift of purpose, God gives Adam a responsibility. The responsibility of freedom as he places him in the garden. In verse 16, God gives him every tree in the garden. Every tree in the garden, including the tree of life. He could have every tree in the garden except one. Except one. There were no limits on any other tree, no exclusions. It doesn't say, hey, you can only go back to the tree of life once a day. There's no limit to the abundance that God has given Adam in the garden. And that abundance is great freedom. Great freedom. The consequence that God sets before the man here as he gives him this amazing freedom is clearly spelled out. And in the Hebrew, the words are pretty emphatic. The words uh, are in Hebrew, you shall surely die if you eat from this one tree. It's pretty simple and spelled out from here. And the word death here uh, is, is a combination of physical and spiritual death. That's the meaning of this word. It means that your bodies will perish eventually. Obviously, we know from the story next week that they didn't die physically on the spot, but their bodies would eventually perish. But their souls would uh, immediately experience separation from the fellowship of God, physical death and spiritual death. So with this wonderful God-given freedom that Adam has comes a God-given responsibility. A God-given responsibility. The responsibility to choose wisely and the freedom to choose obedience or suffer the consequences. Uh, my two-year-old grandson, John Roberts, has been staying with me recently. And he just last week has learned to climb out of his crib. Now, before he discovered that newfound freedom, he had no freedom to choose whether he stayed in his bed at nap time or when it was bedtime. Um, now, that darling little John Robert has the freedom to choose. He can choose between nap, he can, which would be a great choice for him because he's a busy little guy and he needs nap. He can choose between nap or he can choose between mama's consequences if he, try, if he climbs out of that crib. You know, God gives Adam a similar circumstances. He gives him the freedom of the entire garden, the freedom to choose wisely, the freedom to choose wisely or suffer the consequences. And Moses, who wrote this very text uh, concerning the responsibility of freedom for Adam, actually sets a similar choice that mirrors this so um, 
perfectly in Deuteronomy 30 as he's speaking his last words to the nation of Israel before they go into the promised land. Look at Deuteronomy 30, 15, and 16. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering and taking possession of. That's the freedom that the nation of Israel would have when they moved into the promised land and they are given a similar choice by Adam, by Moses. Use your freedom to choose obedience and you will be blessed. You will be blessed. It's a wonderful life for all of us when we recognize that the responsibility that freedom carries is simply obedience. Simply obedience. Because God knew when he placed Adam in the garden that it's not obedience if we have no freedom to choose otherwise. It's not obedience if we have no freedom to choose otherwise. Okay, now we get to look at the best part of the text, which is when God creates women. (laughs) Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not afraid. In my world, I have three grown sons, and I have a number six grandson on the way. So I know that God gets it right when he says it's not good that man should be alone, because Crazy things happen at my house when you leave all that testosterone alone. I don't, have, um, I don't have time to tell you the stories, but I have a book of those kind of stories. So if you want to hear why it's not good for man to be alone, find me. I'll tell you. Uh, I can validate my claim here. But one thing that God validates here by saying it's not good for man to be alone is the truth that God alone knows what's good for man. Look at Jeremiah 20:11 on your verse sheet. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. You know, the world tries to tell us all the time what's good for us. And the culture argues with us that God's plans are wrong. That God did not, that there is no God or the way God wants it done is not wrong. But the scriptures here validate the truth that God alone knows what's good for the man he created. Now what the text also tells us here is that it is not good um, 
when it tells us that it is not good for man to be alone, what it also tells us is that basically means that uh, man is not complete yet. He was only half the equation of mankind when it came to God's plan for human life. God had never intended for Adam to be his final word. He had never intended praise God, for the world to be inhabited only by women, I mean, only by men. And in verse 18, he also tells us what it is that will complete Adam. It is a helper fit for him. Now, throughout the ages, uh, when women look at this text, they get hung up on this word that is translated in our English Bible, helper, and Moses uses it here. But what I want you to know is that a helper in the Hebrew text uh, does not mean a servant or a slave. It is not a demeaning or a derogatory word. In fact, Jesus uses the Greek equivalent of this word to describe the Holy Spirit in John 14. And throughout the Old Testament, this Hebrew word is used to describe God himself. Look on your verse sheet at um, John 14. And it says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Um, this is the same word used here, uh, the Greek equivalent, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then look at Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield exact same Hebrew word to describe women right here. A helper fit for Adam is someone that corresponds to him, someone that complements him, someone with the same nature that God has already given Adam, someone who was also, we know from the text in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, someone that was also created in the image of God, someone that has been given the same responsibility by God to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion on the world. But this someone on the world, but this someone has a different role from the first half of that creation, uh, which is Adam. Even as Adam uh, recognizes his own aloneness, God recognizes it for Adam. He needs a complementary, corresponding uh, uh, helpmate to walk along beside him. So God in his wisdom and his graciousness provides Adam with that compliment. With that compliment. And that compliment is the first woman that we know as Eve. And he creates Eve. He makes her not from the dust of the ground, which is so interesting. Uh, He makes her from Adam himself. uh, And he puts Adam to sleep while he creates Eve. I think he puts Adam to sleep. Uh, Certainly this someone described in the small group leaders that this was the first surgery, but I think he puts Adam to sleep so that Adam cannot critique him while he makes a a woman. He cannot add to the equation, hey, why don't you make her a little bit more, you know, whatever. So when Adam wakes up, Woman is God's creation alone. He can't critique her or uh, add to her. You know, as women, there are two key passages in the scriptures that should inspire each one of us and excite us because it really defines who we are. You know, the world wants to define us each and every day, but honestly, these two passages in Genesis are the beginning that we should all start at when we say, 
Who am I as a woman? The first one is in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. 27 is down at the bottom of your verse sheet. It says, so God created man in his image. And the image of God, he created him male and female. And what that tells us is that women are equally created in the image of God as men are. Men and women are both God's image bearers. That's a start for us right here in chapter 1 of Genesis. The other passage is right here in chapter 2 that reveals that we have a unique role. We have a unique role in our relationship with uh, God's other creation, man. Our unique role serves to complete God's design for mankind. Um, now, we, we don't live in the perfect world that was without weeds uh, when, Adam, when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. We live in a world that looks a little bit different like, from the one that we have here in this text. And because of that, uh, many of us as women may spend a significant amount of our lives as single women. I was 25 before I got married. Statistics tell me that I'll outlive my husband by 15 years. I don't know whether that's true or not. But if it is true, it means I'll live half of my life not married. And during the times that I'm not married or you are not married, we are still created in the image of God. We are still created to be counterparts and compliments to the men that are in our everyday lives. We are still created to be uh, God's counterpart to the guy that we're on a team with at work or to the uh, gentleman in our neighborhood. We are still offering and bringing to the world a woman's perspective because that's who God created us to be. But along with the account of woman's creation, uh, we also have God's blueprint right here for marriage. We have the first marriage ceremony that uh, God himself officiates as he brings Eve to Adam in verse 23. And I don't know about you, but when I am at a wedding, one of the things that I love to do when they open those doors at the back of the room, take that great glimpse at the beautiful bride that's walking down the aisle, and then I want to look at the groom and see what his reaction is to seeing that bride for the very first time. And, you know, some of those grooms are just grinning so big. You think, oh, my gosh, your face is going to uh, break open. Some of them begin to grow to cry and you can just see them tear up some of them um uh, begin to shake shake because i think they think oh my goodness what am i doing here uh, <laughs> but we get to see a first look at adam's reaction here as it's god himself in this passage that is really walking um the bride down the aisle here and you know in the marriage ceremony it always says who gives this bride to this man to be married? And usually the father of the bride says, I do right here. When that question is uh, asked, who gives this bride in the first marriage ceremony? It's God that answers. God gives the first bride in the first marriage ceremony. And Adam's response is so fun. It's so fun. He says, at last, at last, as if he'd been waiting uh, forever. But um, I don't think it had really been that long. But uh, anyway, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And what this tells us about Adam is that he is 
trusting God with God's plan for marriage. He's never seen a woman before. He has no idea who this gal is or what he's like or what he's getting himself into. But he has such a trust in his God that if this is God's plan for him, he's going to go with it and he's excited about it. She is God's best provision for him and he recognizes it. There's no hesitation. There is no hesitation. So as chapter 2 closes right here on God's plan for a wonderful life, what we see right here at the very end is clearly God's blueprint for marriage. God's blueprint for the relationship between a man and a woman from the moment of their creation. Marriage is the first institution created by God. He's already created the universe. He's created the plants and the animals and everything in it. He's created his first two human beings. Now he creates that first institution that is going to govern and guide the lives of the people um, before they are fruitful and multiply, not afterwards. Before they are fruitful and multiply. Um, He creates the institution of marriage before he creates the nation of Israel, before he creates the church. What we know from where this passage is in the creation account is that marriage is a foundational principle to the world's um, future. A foundational principle to the world's future. Marriage and its guiding principles are a sovereign creation of God alone, clearly designed to bless the man and the woman and be the building blocks of a future world. The building block of a future world of all families and all societies that are going to result from the command to be fruitful and multiply. Um, I want to share with you just... uh, some principles about marriage before we close right here. And they're in this passage. The first principle of marriage that we see of God's blueprint for marriage we've already talked about is that God instituted it. What that means is not only is it the building block of all future families and societies, it means that marriage is not man-made. Marriage is not man-made, so it cannot be defined by man. It can only be defined by God who created it. We clearly see here that marriage is God's idea, and he lays it out in an exact blueprint for us to follow. The blueprint that we see here, secondly, we also see that God intended marriage to be monogamous. God intended marriage to be monogamous. It's clear from the text that Adam was completed by one woman. Adam was completed by one woman. You know, God could have done anything here. He could have given Adam multiple wives. He could have given it at one time. He could have given him wives in succession. But he was given one wife that completes him. So anywhere you see in our culture or in the scriptures that men take more than one wife you can know that that was not God's plan for marriage. That was man's sin perverting God's plan. And if you look carefully at those situations in the scriptures, you'll see why. Because none of them where there are multiple wives involved turn out well for anyone. They never turn out well. God's blueprint for marriage is monogamy. The third thing that we see in God's blueprint for marriage is that God intended marriage, this foundational building block of all societies of the world, to be heterosexual. 
heterosexual. God is God. He could have offered any design for marriage he wanted to. He could have designed it for two men or two women or a man, a woman, and an alligator, as Ted said on Sunday morning. Um, But he did not. The creator, the designer of this building block that's foundational for our world, um, right here says one man and one woman. Now, next week, we're going to look at chapter 3, where the serpent says to Eve, did God really say that? Did God really say that? That's exactly what our culture and our society, that's how they're airing today, because they're saying, did God really say that? Yes, he did. God said marriage is heterosexual, one man and one woman. Anything else is clearly not marriage no matter how many laws we pass saying differently the fourth uh, thing in the building block god's blueprint for marriage is that god intended for it to be physically and spiritually intimate verse 24 tells us that marriage involves a consummation that unites a couple as one flesh that's a physical and a spiritual uniting as one flesh Moses also tells us here that marriage takes precedent over the bonds that individuals have with their parents and their families of origin. Moses was probably countering a cultural problem that Israel had been uh, bumping up against, that a perception that parents had rights to their children even after marriage here in verse 24. That's not scriptural, and it's not God's intention. The bond of marriage comes first, and it requires their couple commit to each other, leaving their families of origin emotionally and physically and cleaving together. And the final thing we see right here in God's blueprint for marriage is that marriage is a lifelong commitment. A lifelong commitment. There really is no other way to interpret verse 24 where it says, Hold fast to your wife and become one flesh in a way that normalizes anything but a lifelong commitment. God's blueprint is a design that really is meant to guard us Uh, and our families from the pain that comes from making it anything else but a lifelong commitment. What we need to take away from God's blueprint for marriage, uh, along with all these uh, particulars, is that he considers marriage foundational to the future of the world. When we lose his blueprint, we lose... uh, the world begins to crumble around us. When we lose his blueprint for marriage, the world begins to crumble around us. You know, whenever we study the scriptures together, we do two things. We say, what does it mean right here in this passage? And then we say, what does it mean to us? So what? So what? Our so what today, if we think about that incredible garden that God created for Adam, and then he places him in there and he gives him purpose, and he gives him the perfect spouse that complimented him, and he gives him the freedom to enjoy every bit of it but one small tree, we realize that Adam's life would have taken a much different course if he had trusted all of God's plans and obeyed all of God's commands. The lesson that we glean from chapter 2 today, our so what, is that it's no different for each of us today. It's no different for each of us. It's a wonderful life when we trust all of God's plans and obey all of God's commands. Pray with me. 
Father, you are gracious and good God. You have given us the truth of your word. You have um, blessed us, blessed us with salvation from our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would be women this morning that walk in your truth and obey your commands. Thank you for these women. And I ask for your hand of favor and blessing on each one of them as we leave today. I pray this in the name of your son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.